Hi, I'm Colleen Brennan. And I'm Janice Rodriguez. And this is Defending Indiana. Today, we learn about the history of the KKK in the state of Indiana with our guest, Professor Emeritus from Indiana University, Dr. James Madison. Hey, Janice. Hey, Colleen. We want to just give a quick warning to our listeners today that we are going to be discussing racism and the KKK in Indiana. And if this is something that you are uncomfortable hearing, um, or if in any way you think it might be triggering, this is your fair warning, okay? Okay. But also, please please keep listening. (laughs) Please keep listening. You you need to. Um, So yes, but... You know, we understand these things are complicated and um, painful to a lot of people. So we just want to make sure we're letting you guys know we're going to talk about some stuff. We're talking about stuff. About stuff, stuff that Janice and I aren't even comfortable talking about. Right. As you can about. tell from our silences. We're like, how do we make this funny? Um, it's not. None of it is. Um, we've, just, we've just spent 35 minutes before even beginning this recording right. trying to figure out how exactly we're going we're gonna to address this. Uh Guys, it's a real light topic, racism. I mean, it's just light. It's just, you know, no, of course not. I mean, it's complicated. It's hard. It brings up a lot of feelings. So I think um, I love our guest today. I love that we kind of came into it initially from a historical context. And like we said, unfortunately, in an hour, we can't solve this multi-layered generational problem. Um, but we could talk about it, right? Try to give some education, try to give some context and, um, you know, try to see how we can let people know. I think learning history, learning the things in the past is going to only help us, you know, in the future and try to just open some people's minds to this is how, this is where we're at today. You can't understand that until you understand the past, in my opinion. Yeah. You said that really well and you stutter far less frequently than I do. So I'm really glad that you took the time to give that part. So the whole reason why we, having this episode is because I sent out um, a little crowdsourcing funny haha survey trying to uh, solicit three words that come to mind when you hear the word Indiana. And we received like hundreds of responses. Um, And probably 50% of them were pretty, you know, good. I mean, there was some Mellon Camp. There was some Indiana Jones. <laughs> Is it good though? Is Mellon Camp? There was some Notre Dame and IU and Purdue. There was a lot of Larry Bird. Um, one shout out to Jim Gaffigan, who, by the way, I would do almost anything to get on an episode of Defending Indiana. So if you know him, please give him our yes, email address. DM um, us. Uh, but um, the other 50%, uh, we saw a lot of racism. Ugh associated with Indiana. We saw a lot of KKK associated with Indiana. And so we decided that it was probably a good idea to look into that a little bit more to find out if there was a way to defend Indiana. And I think we discovered that there really isn't. Right. I wish you guys could see my face. I'm like, ooh, ooh, I'm cringing. Colleen, you also forgot a little sprinkle of homophobia. So, um, that was like number, I would say, almost two. 
after racism. Um, another episode, as I say, and often in multiple episodes. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's not defendable, but again, to my earlier point, we have to try to understand it, understand where it came from. Um, and just kind of its roots, I think in the state. Yeah. So we can't talk about the whole, I mean, the whole thing, like it's, Janice and I are not going to solve racism today. We're not. We can't. I wish I could. Right. We have no skills um, in this area. We have no expertise. We have very little information, um, enough to make us dangerous. And so for those reasons, we're going to leave this to the experts to tell us exactly what we need to do as good citizens to make sure that we can start to make some of this shit stop. Um, Yeah. <laughs> Uncomfortable silence. It's my new hit single, guys. Um, yeah, so I, I was excited to learn um, about <laughs> excited might be the wrong word, <laughs> but it is very interesting because there's a lot of obviously parallels to today, and you have to understand again the history of some of these organizations. I mean, I guess we must call them that, and then how it kind of morphs in today, and you just see these patterns. I think the one point that um, the doctor you'll hear shortly um, was that these are like normal people and this concept of like othering, like that's not me. That's not my neighbor. No, it is. <laughs> and I think maybe we've learned that if anything, in the last four years on social media, you know, you're kind of seeing how people feel about things. Um, and yeah, I mean, I just, I just don't think there's this, this line anymore of, you're a racist. I'm a racist. Like, you know what I mean? I don't know. And then because of that blurring and then the politicizing of it, it's like, wait, what? And so it's just, it's just, it's just really hard. It's really hard to uh, admit it, see it. Like what's my role in trying to help you change your, your mind? What is like, what, what, like, what do I do here? So I think there's a lot of that too. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, what do we, so, so today we're going to spend, We're going to spend more time with our guests today talking about the history of the KKK in the state of Indiana, and he's going to provide some context and a lot of really fascinating information about um, the structure of the KKK in Indiana, their agenda, how they operated, and to Janice's point, how normal they considered themselves and how normalizing it made people feel better about being a part of it. Yes. And I think that was probably for me, one of the most disturbing parts of our education, Janice was Mm -hmm. really hearing Dr. Madison say consistently over and over again, that these were people who were, quote unquote, good people. They believed that what they were doing was the right thing. Mm -hmm. And they were invested in it at such a high level that they paid dues and created a community and tried to normalize hatred. Um, And we're still Mm -hmm. trying to get over that today. It's very much, I'm right, you're wrong type of thing. And I, that's, I think that's what I struggle with. Like we're bringing it to today's times is even the concept of 
you know, right after the election, right after the insurrection, I'm going to call it that. Yep. Um, there was a lot of, I even wrote a joke about this, a lot of like, come on guys, it's time to forgive. Like meaning <laughs> people like me, call me a lefty, whatever. I, I just like to be a human. Um, I don't agree with, with that. And the, the undertones of a lot of that are steeped in racism, but again, probably another episode. Um, yep. But it was very much like, wait, I, people who feel like I do, we're supposed to forgive them. And this goes back to reconciliation, you know, reparation. It's like a whole thing. And it's like, why is the onus always on yes. us? And so I just struggle with that. And again, we're not going to solve that today, but I mean, it still feels that way that there's very much like, well, if you other them, then there's, they're going to grow. And I'm like, well, how do I bring them back in the fold if we're like diametrically opposed in our moral views about how to treat people of other cultures and races? <sighs> just light subjects, Colleen, just light, light subjects. Janice, there's I nothing. Diametrically, word of the day. Did I use it right? Please tell me I did. There's nothing like a couple of comedians taking on it. Like, right. Titanic, huge, just, big problem. Big, big um, stuff. Yeah. But it's also, I think that touches on my like, you know, Catholic upbringing, very much like, forgive them. And I'm like, bye, bye, you know, and it's so, yeah. I mean, there is, there, there is, I, I don't, I don't understand the forgive part. I had it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Scorpio people. I thought we discussed this. I cannot. Okay. I want us all to get along, but I, you know, okay. I'll forgive people, but maybe we should also punish them at the same time. <laughs> because when I go to confession, it, it, and by the way, it's been a solid 30 years since yeah, I've I was say. confessional booth. But when I used to go to confession, I would go in and I would be granted forgiveness. However, there was penance. Did them 10 Hail Marys. You don't get you don't get away with this shit for free, people. No, so yeah, you can okay. Yeah, that's fine. We'll get to forgiving. But where's the penance? But also, where's the actual asking for forgiveness? I mean. If you don't, at the end of the day, you don't feel you did anything wrong. You don't feel your beliefs are wrong. I, I don't know. I don't know how we get past that. That's a whole other thing. Yeah, because you got to make it into the confession booth, right? Right, exactly. Um, and just in one way, it's kind of like, wow. I mean, I, I, nothing's changed. I mean, I would say as American, it's a very American principle and a very American like value. Like we're strong believers, whatever we believe in. And we fight about it to the end. But I was like, oh, but you guys are wrong. Um, so that's a hard, that's a hard thing. That's a hard thing to. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, this is me laughing through pain, people. No, yeah, this is funny. This is just awkward right. and horrible. Um, but we yeah. use humor to make ourselves. <laughs> right, exactly. We'll just start better. Because that's extra on the weekend. So, yeah. Um, but yeah. So the, so it's it, this is a good jumping off point I think um obviously we we could and we we will we we will talk about this in different you know types of contexts but it it to me it's it's sad it's sad that you know you did an informal poll on and it was a lot of mutual people that we know and yeah. um racism was like number 1 like yeah that's what they think about Indiana like how do we change that and i mean you know and people who and, and by the way, the people who I grew up with in Indiana, those were not the first words that came. Okay. So 
what does it mean that we who Oof. who grew up there yeah. and and left a while ago or people who are still living there don't understand the extent to which others think that that's a huge part of Indiana. I don't, I don't, I have no, Janice, I have zero answers. No. I am just stating but things that true. I learned. It's true. Like, what do we feel as Hoosiers versus the perception of the rest of the country, world, et cetera, um, because what about did, Indiana? We were just looking at that article. What what did, uh, what was stated in there? Because that was really interesting to me. Because I had, I'd heard, a, by the way, I've heard a lot through, through the. I, yeah, I've never heard this. The state of Indiana is like the middle finger to the north, I think is what the article said. But it was in response. Yeah, the southern, it's the southern's, the south's middle finger to the north. Yeah. The south's middle finger to the north. And I've never heard that before. I had And neither. I was like, oh, that's, yeah, sorry. It's the south's middle finger to the north. That's one of Indiana's nicknames that we don't slap on welcome signs, according to this article. I have never heard that. But could it, could it also have to do with the fact that the state of Indiana physically, if you're looking at it on a map, does look straight like a middle finger sort of emerging? I don't I mean, like it's obviously. No, I don't think so. No, I, <laughs> I like your version. To, I like your version better. I, um, I, I think it might have more to do with the fact that Indiana is one of five states in the nation that doesn't have a hate crime law on the book. That's disturbing. What yeah. are the other states? You have the list there? No, I don't. I just know it's one of five. I'm gonna have like to a- imagine where they are. And this is what I'm saying. This is why I that whole thing of like geographically, we're very much the north. Um, you know, even Civil War times, we weren't like a split state, nope. but people did leave and fight for the Confederacy. But um that happened in every state. Yeah. But we were a union state. Indianapolis is one of the biggest union. Yeah. You know, kind of um, like camps, but yeah, to like reload on supplies and stuff. It was like a huge base. So uh, we have a pretty strong history of being in the union. But um, as I were talking about, like that time from then to Jim Crow, like what happened? (laughs) You know, reconstruction through Jim Crow. And then, you know, again, not doing, I don't want to give the whole interview away, but you know, the, how we differed from the Southern's approach um, of the KKK. So yeah, maybe I, that's what it is. Maybe because we don't have a lot of these, you know, again, when you're talking about people about lynching, et cetera, we're not, you're not going to give somebody a Northern example, right? Right. So I guess the affiliation of like violence, that's the South. You know, yeah. and I'm whispering because I'm saying like, yeah, but that's probably a misconception because violence can be not only physical violence. There's other things that you can do to. I mean, whatever we could talk about Chicago. I mean, Chicago is the worst. It's like the most yeah. segregated city in the yeah. country. Yeah, exactly. Literally. Um, and the problems so, they've had in, you know, New York and New York City. Yeah, and, of course. I mean, we're, we really are talking about. I, I think maybe that was when Janice and I were approaching recording this part of the podcast, the part we were struggling with the most was trying to find out like specifically what is our goal for today? Mm -hmm. And uh, obviously, as we said earlier, we're not going to solve racism. But maybe today when you listen to um, Dr. Jim Madison, you can start to understand what the KKK looked like in Indiana and get some historical context 
And then maybe at a later date, Janice and I can try to find some people to talk to about what's happening in Indiana to change attitudes. Fair enough. Fair enough. Cause I, I'd like to change it. I, I, um, I'm proud to be from Indiana. I think that's why we started this, right? Right. We always knew we were going to jab a little and laugh at it, but it's good. Like we have always said, it's like our crazy uncle. You can't say anything about him, right? <laughs> we can, yeah. but this is a, this is a painful subject um, that we're like, Oh, we get why people don't like our uncle, you know? What I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and because yeah. sometimes we don't like be... sitting in the same room with the jazz. Right. You're like, so. Oh, duh. and, and trying to also, you know, as we're continuing to research, like myth versus reality, and it doesn't matter because perception is what you feel. And I mean, mm-hmm. that's what you see and that's what you believe. So then how do we go about changing those? And unfortunately, I mean, just learning today, I didn't realize that Illinois, I'm sorry, wrong state, Indiana didn't pass that hate crime act in 2017. That's disappointing. It's disappointing. So <laughs> in the spirit of education today, Janice, <laughs> let's uh, take some time to learn about the history of the KKK in the state of Indiana and just get some understanding of what was going on. And later we'll get back to more uncomfortable conversations. Um, <laughs> or we'll just avoid it. Like, we'll just avoid it terribly. We're like, this was painful. <laughs> We're comedians. And yeah, yeah, we just, let's keep it light. Uh, no, it light. I mean, it's, it's important. And I, you know what, what a, what a great thing that we could just talk like real people and, you know, I know we, we're we're good at arguing both sides, but I think we're pretty clear. There's there's not a there's not another side on this. So, um, but I think we have to understand the other side in order to make real change. So, yeah, I mean, I want to I want to dig a little deeper and see what we can do. And I know there's probably some great Hoosiers out there and great organizations that are trying to do that. And um, you know, we look forward to having them on the show because it's just sorry, guys, it's not going away. We, we we've got to. <laughs> This is the, the the reckoning, if you will, of of things that happened way before our times. But we uh, we can do it. We have the we have the wherewithal. We have the education. We have the tools. We can we can make change. It's not too late. We can do it. And the first step is education. Our guest today is the Thomas and Catherine Miller Professor Emeritus of History at Indiana University. He's an award-winning teacher and the author of several books, including Eli Lilly, A Life, Slingin' Donuts for the Boys, An American Woman in World War II, Hoosiers, A New History of Indiana, and A Lynching in the Heartland, Race and Memory in America. Jim's latest book is The Ku Klux Klan in the Heartland. Please welcome Dr. Jim Madison. Yay! Hi, folks. Nice to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you. We are so glad to have you here today. So um, I'm going to, I'm actually, Jim, if you don't mind, I'm going to start off by reading a quote that I picked up uh, off the internet uh, that that you gave, which I think sort of sets the tone for helping us understand a little bit more about what you're going to talk about today. Here we go. White native born Protestants were the Klan. They believed themselves to be 100% Americans as they claimed the righteousness of their religion, the purity of their race, and the sanctity of their patriotism. All others were suspect, even dangerous. To Hoosier clan members, the most dangerous enemies were Catholics and immigrants. 
Less important were African-Americans and Jews, though they too were certainly not 100% Americans. The Klan hierarchy placed pure white Americans at the top with lesser peoples below. People Klan members believed were sending the nation to hell in a handbasket. Whoa. What? Thank you, Colleen. I love that quote. That's a great <laughs> quote. I can't believe I wrote that. That's an amazing quote. It's an amazing quote. Painful as it is. Amazing. What on earth were these people so afraid of? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, fear is a part of this. You know, we're all afraid of stuff, you know. Um, ghosts in the night. But they, and the Klan was very good at taking ordinary fears and and broadcasting them, magnifying them, and and creating from those fears enemies. And you named the enemies there. Uh, you accurately listed, and I said it, uh, the first enemy, unknown to many, many people today, were not African-Americans or Jews, though they were on the Klan's enemy list. It was Catholics. How about that? I, I you know, as, <laughs> as somebody who is of Irish Catholic heritage, I find that surprising. I don't think I ever really understood that. Uh, well, you got two things against you there, Colleen. Right. One Catholic and Irish, and Irish, immigrant and Catholic, and the two are often mixed. Yeah, uh, well, together, you know, we like to we like to. And, and boy, the clan the clan went after both immigrants and Catholics. It's hard to explain today because, well, not the immigrant thing. We still got the immigrant thing. You know, the clan promised in in the 1920s they were going to build a wall around America. Who knew that? We thought that was just new news. That's old news. Wow. But the Catholic thing is not so well understood or known, but it was deep and serious. All kinds of myths about Catholics, what they were up to. And they were up to all sorts of no good. Like what? Like, like what well, are we doing? Uh, first of all, it's a foreign church. You know, does the Pope speak English? No, the Pope doesn't speak English. Well, therefore, he's suspect. Mm -hmm. You know, we're defending Indiana today, but Indiana did pass a law outlawing the teaching of German in public schools. Now, like is often the case in Indiana, uh, Indiana was a little slow to get around to things. This was a World War I issue. Germans were the enemy. But it, the war ended in November of 1918. Indiana didn't get around to passing that prohibition of teaching German in public schools until 1919. The war was over. <laughs> late. Day late and a dollar short, Hoosiers. Uh, what were we talking about? <laughs> All the things. I wanted, to I wanted to jump in here when we talk about... Um the the whole like immigrant thing because it it always cracks me up because weren't the people like in the clan only like one or two generations here? Of course, many of them were. Some of them were not. Some of them could claim uh, Mayflower status, you know, or or Jamestown, Virginia status, as I can if you want to talk about that. Right. But but uh, some of them were were relatively newcomers. Uh, but but you're 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 asking questions that are rational questions now, and there's. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff about the Klan that to our mind in our day does not seem rational. It seems wacko, but I believe we have to take them seriously. So, yeah, immigrants, immigrants are danger. And even more broadly, let me go back to that 100% American label. What do you think about that? What the hell is 100% American? I, I what is American? I mean, that's a <laughs> start. Well, yeah. There. We've always been a mix of people and... Uh, I, so, so, so did they have, um, 
I guess I'm looking for like the playbook. I'm looking for like the the mission statement, the 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 what's spe- <laughs> the operating know, manual. Or were they yeah. just were they just winging it as they went along? Like we hate you too, and we hate you too, and no, no, they weren't winging it. One of the great myths is that this clan in the Indiana in the twenties. We're not talking about the later clan. We can do that if you want, but the clan yeah. in Indiana in the twenties was not a bunch of rubes. They were not a bunch of unwashed hillbillies. They were very middle-class, successful lawyers, doctors, retail store owners, good church women, Protestant ministers. These were the, these were good Hoosiers, normal people, ordinary, everyday, good Hoosiers. They were also very sophisticated when it came to running an organization, i.e. the Ku Klux Klan. So in the Indiana Historical Society Library, there is a thick manual a Ku Klux Klan manual, how to run an organization, how to recruit members, handle money, dues, what to do at the Clavern meetings. There's a Clavern in all 92 Indiana counties, and the manual tells you exactly what you should do, how you should open the meeting, what songs and hymns you want to sing, what pledge allegiance to the flag, and all. And then, and then, of course, let's remind everyone at every Clavern meeting who the enemy is why they're trying to send America to hell in a handbasket, and what we, the 100% good Americans, are going to do about it. (sighs) (laughs) We're just speechless, Colin. It's pretty hard. hard Did I upset you? You guys are supposed to be funny. Did I make you sad? This is, yeah, this is a little sad. Well, tell me this, because, um, where did the Ku Klux Klan originate? And then what are the roots in Indiana? Because I, I, I've heard so many stories over the years, and I should know this, and that's just me, again, avoiding pain, um, that there's yeah. a big connection with Martinsville, Indiana, and um, that it even started in the state. And I don't know if that's true. I believe it started further south. But um, yeah. yeah. We're talking about the Klan of the 20s. It really did begin in the south. Okay. But, but it spread to the north. It existed from New Jersey and New York, across the Midwest, West, very popular in the Midwest, all the way to Oregon and California. So it's a nationwide organization in the 1920s, especially strong in Indiana, but it didn't start here. Uh, But Hoosiers really liked the Klan as much as just about any other people in other states in the nation. Um, So uh, Martinsville, that's a later story. Martinsville doesn't happen until the 1970s and 80s. Uh, Martinsville in the 1920s is just like other Small Indiana towns, almost all white, very few immigrants, very few Jews. Some have Catholics, but not so many. Some industrial towns have lots of Catholics. But it doesn't matter. You can, you can, you can hate people even if you don't know them. If you've never met one of those not 100% Americans, you can still, you can still say they're not 100% American. And the Klan did that. So... <laughs> This is just, this is fascinating and, and disturbing. Disturbing, right. That's the whole um, thing. On so many levels. Um, but the parallels to today, right? And then we'll get into that's, that. that. But, you know, it's so funny. I was reading in the New York Times this morning. Um, they were talking about how the organizational structure of, of the people who raided the Capitol, uh, a lot of those organizations, Proud Boys, some others they mentioned, um, were losing... Uh, members or were splintering off into groups because there was no centralized leadership. There wasn't a, a solid organizational leadership, but it sounds to me like 
um, the Klan w- would really thrive right now in this environment because they have a centralized leadership as it and, and, a, and a book uh, with rules and um, rituals, yeah. <laughs> a meeting agenda. Uh, you know, is there a Secretary of Arms like I, yeah. <laughs> urgent at arms? A secretary taking there a- was actually, and the officials, the yeah. officials of the local claverns. There were everyone was an officer. And the officers all had these wacko, crazy titles that all started with a K. Cyclops, Klopsops, blah, blah, blah. All started with a K. They did have a sense of humor. <laughs> I got I got you off track. Colleen asked an important question. <laughs> here's, here's my take on that. Uh, as I said, the Klan in Indiana in the 1920s was well organized. They had internal factions and difficulties, but they were they were really well organized and powerful. And they came close to taking over the state of Indiana in 1925. Uh, I suspect if the Indiana Klan of the 1920s had organized the riot on January 6th, they would have done a much better job than these idiots who did do it. We can be thankful that they were yeah. such doofuses, yeah. horrible, evil action, but they couldn't park a bicycle straight, as George Wallace used to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's good. That's good. They're still dangerous. Yeah, I don't want right. to dismiss that. But the Klan of the 1920s was far more sophisticated, organized, had a communication network, a hierarchical operation. They would have pulled this off. So I, that leads me to another question that I had. So I was I was reading that Governor Jackson, and I'm, I'm not sure when Governor Jackson was governor in Indiana. I'm assuming it was around that 1925 period of time. And yes. D.C. Stevenson, who sounds like a real gem of a dude. Um, mm. I'm wondering, like, how so how prevalent was it? What what percentage of the population identified themselves as Klan members? And and if I can tag on another question, did they hide those affiliations or was everybody in Indiana accepting of this? About a third of native born white men joined the Klan in Indiana. That's a large number, several yeah, hundred thousand, probably an equal number of women. Women joined the Klan, too. Uh, Jackson was certainly a, a Klan guy. A majority of the members of the Indiana General Assembly elected in 1924 were Klan members. Uh, Christina Hale, who I heard on your program earlier, uh, has has wonderful insight in the General Assembly. She never had to sit next to Klan members, however, as tough as it may have been for her. Uh, Can I tell you about my my, one of my favorite governors? Ed Jackson is the worst governor in history of Indiana. Yeah. And that's saying something, you know, there's some competitors, but he was the worst. But his predecessor uh, name is Emmett Branch, B-R-A-N-C-H, who named all his children. I think he had four daughters, named them all first name of a tree. So there's Maple Branch daughter and <laughs> L, L, <laughs> Maple Branch oh. daughter and Tulip Tree daughter. And um, he's a creative a, a guy, go, a governor with a creative sense. There of we go. Different it. angle, very nature oriented. <laughs> I love it. Um, uh, where do I even go with this? So to kind of pivot a little, just and, and to go a little bit back on the January sixth, I've always said that I was like, the level of the of the belief system that's going on now with you know the QAnon people and the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and even the people who will, who won't say they're QAnons but they 
when you finally kind of get them in a corner, they realize they believe that. The level of the belief, again, with a little bit more organization, I think I'll think bad things could have 100% have happened at January 6th. So where does this where does this go from here? Because I read something similar, Colleen, about the Ku Klux Klan is like actively recruiting, right? They're like, hey, disappointed with the Proud Boys and Q and Oath Keepers, come on over here. Like it's hilarious. There's like a, there's like a recruiting drive right now. I mean, you know, it's it's ridiculous. Like we're gonna start seeing pamphlets again. Um, so yeah, I mean, how, how does that work? And then in this day and time of social media, like how do you get away with being in the clan? Like how can you openly be in the clan? Like. I'm so confused. <laughs> well, it's a lot It's a lot harder than it was in the 1920s. Right. To answer Colleen's earlier question, the 1920s, very, very few Klan members were embarrassed to be in the Klan. I've got photographs right. of them standing with their masks raised, very proud to be members of the Ku Klux Klan, because they thought of themselves as the good Americans. They were normal. It was right. the Catholics who were not normal. Uh, they were. They had nothing to be embarrassed about. Today, it's a little different. You know, I think any any rational person is embarrassed to be associated with the Klan. And that's only the beginning of our reactions today. However, think about what we all see when we see someone in a white robe and hood or a burning cross. These are images deep, deep in the American culture. We all know what they mean, and they they frighten us. They intimidate us. They scare us. And if we're African-American, they really can intimidate us because African-Americans have generational stories of violence, of intimidation by the Klan and other organizations. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't don't know if the Klan – the Klan's a little old-fashioned today. The – the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, the others, they're trying to be more cutting edge. They're more hip. And the Klan is, is in the last, it came back again in the 1960s and 70s as a reaction to the civil rights movement. And it was always a little bit old fashioned. I have a wonderful photograph of some Klan guys in about 1975 having lunch in a diner. And they're eating, they're eating big plates of spaghetti next to which they have cups of coffee. I find that really funny. <laughs> Just use the robe as a nap. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, You're watching where. Um, so as you were speaking, another question popped into my mind. You had mentioned earlier that there were dues. Yeah. So from an economic standpoint, how much money does the Klan take in, in dues? And what on earth do they do with that money? They take in tons of money, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. In fact, over a million dollars plus a year, eventually. Uh, They use that money to build the organization. They pay recruiters. They pay organizers. They pay Protestant ministers to go out and speak at Klan rallies, good Methodists and Baptist ministers. Um, but they also use it for their own self-aggrandizement. You mentioned D.C. Stevenson, the Grand Dragon of Indiana, the most popular Klan leader in the country in the 1920s, a very charismatic, really amazing guy, a successful salesman. Everyone loves Steve. Uh, The Klan was very prudish. We should talk about their prudish side. 
but but Stevenson was not. Stevenson, uh, this is the time when when the clan one of the one of the clan enemies is alcohol, demon rum. We got to stop. We got to stop people from drinking. Uh, another one was sex. We got to stop them from sex, except for, except for procreation within marriage. Uh, Stevenson was the old-fashioned word womanizer. He loved young women, and he found all sorts of ways to make connections, sexual relationships. He had lots of girlfriends. I've read love letters they wrote to him. It's hard to believe. Women can be stupid, too. I hate to say this as an old <laughs> white guy, but uh, I think it's true. Yeah, I think it's true. You guys can pick up on that if you wish. But but <laughs> Stevenson was was everything the Klan did not stand for. He loved alcohol. He had massive parties at his, at his mansion in Indianapolis uh, with lots of good-looking young women all around him. Uh, he's eventually sent to the state penitentiary in Michigan City, which you guys know, uh, in 1925, because he raped and murdered a young woman. Oh, so this this is this is this is evil personified. There are few people who walk the soil of Indiana more evil than DC Stevenson, the Indiana Grand Dragon. Why did they embrace him? Was it his what is what is his charisma, uh his money, his his I mean because he's in you know, and I, I feel like we've had a recent leader here in the United States who fits the bill a little bit. Um, but they have. Like, there's some. I was like, who are you talking about? Mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I don't know that person. Many right. modern parallels. Um, not be named, right? Yeah. Who shall so, not be named? Um, so why? Why did they embrace that type of a character? Were they aware of what he was doing? Were they aware of the the drinking and the the things that they profess to be against. Some some of the people close to him were, his bodyguards certainly were, and some of the others were. Uh, some of those uh, fellow clan people were quite happy to come to a, a great party at his, at his mansion. He had a yacht on Lake Erie, big yacht on Lake Erie. Uh, he was a party guy. But in public... And at Klan rallies, he was anything but that. He was he was the personification of what the Klan stood for. And he did have charisma. He was a phenomenal salesman. He could sell, you know, anything. Yeah. And, he, and for a long time, he did. Before he came, before he was selling for the Klan, he was selling other things. But when he discovered selling the Klan, he really hit the jackpot and he was really good at it. I bet his mom was so proud. Oh, so proud. yeah. And his former wives, you know. They wives, girlfriends. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, so this this uh, this very prudish organization has a man who's uh, uh, at least two wives, an adulterer, and we could go on. A rapist in a mind. He was yeah. slime. And, you know, I, I'm not going to make any parallels to anyone today. But, yes, and how do good people good Christians in this instance, forgive such. I grew up in a church and this was clearly a sin, right? What happened? What happened? We need to bring back sin to America, don't we? (laughs) That doesn't usually work out for we women, just for for white men. (laughs) I'm okay with that. Where do I vote? Uh, Um, I'm so interested, and I think I've always been interested in trying to understand why a 
uh, proud Christian organization would burn a cross. Help me understand mm-hmm. that symbolism yeah. because it just, ne- I mean, even as a kid, I'm like, I remember being a kid watching something going, this is so, I mean, everything about it is stupid, but why this on top of it? Right. Well, their, their, their rationale for this, and it was a very important ritual, all clan gatherings ended in the evening with the burning of a cross, sometimes more than one. Uh, in their parades, they had uh, they had long lines of marchers followed by cars and floats, which had electric crosses, crosses with bulbs, light bulbs attached to the car battery that lit the night. The, the fiery cross is the fire of salvation, of Jesus, of 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 purity, of of ridding the darkness of evil out of our souls and out of our night. And of course. It's a phenomenal sing- signal that brings together clan people and creates an image that they found very attractive and an image that also is used to intimidate those who are not 100% Americans. It's a brilliant marketing technique. I used to say when I was teaching at Indiana University to students, you know, if we want to get on the Indianapolis News tonight, which, you know, for Hoosiers is the big deal, you know, uh, if we want to get on the Indianapolis News tonight, all we have to do is go outside of blooming to a hillside and, and burn a cross. And the helicopters from all the network stations, mm-hmm. local stations, will be overhead filming us and interviewing us because you can't resist a burning cross today. No, I mean, it's 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 frightening. The images it evokes, it's I mean, it, I know we want to like laugh about it because you're like, this is ridiculous, but. It means something, right? And it, it was meant to instill fear in people. And um, yeah, it, it, it works. Just seeing it, like it's very triggering, like ooh, like like an yeah. old movie or in like old footage. So first of all, they're a very prudish organization. And you would think they have no sense of humor whatsoever. And in some ways that might be true. I mean, they didn't like alcohol. They didn't like sex. They, you know, they hated Hollywood films, partly because they're made by Jews, but also because they so they show these flappers out on the dance floor, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But, but, um, so the Klan meets in St. Joseph County, right? Is one of you from St. Joseph County? No, but I go there, right? But you're nearby, you know, you know South where St. Joseph right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they have a, they have a, a picnic, a, 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 a and they had this all-day rallies ending with the burning cross at night. They had a, they had a, a an outdoor summer gathering uh, outside of South Bend, Indiana, and they have a softball game, and they divide the clan members into the fat guys and the lean guys. I love that. And the fat guys won the softball game. Now, I don't think we could do that today. <laughs> It's but, very not DC. That's it, very it's not. body shaming. Exactly. But, but but the Klan had a sense of humor there, I think. And they report in the Klan newspaper, and I've read the Klan newspaper. You can uh-huh. all read it. It's online. I've spent days reading the Klan newspaper. It's called the Fiery Cross. The Klan oh, newspaper. Oh, of course this, it is. Oh my God. This, the Klan newspaper reports this baseball game outside of South Bend with a kind of tongue-in-cheek sense of humor, ending with the fat. Clan members won the baseball, the softball game. I love that. <laughs> They're real people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, no, Janice, that's absolutely very serious. That's very. No, serious. you're right. They are real people. They're normal people, and we just, we just, we just stigmatize them or mock them to make them not real. They're not like us, for goodness' sakes. They're not good Hoosiers. And then it's easier for us to swallow the bitter pill of what the Klan stands for. 
No, you're absolutely right. And I think that's the shocking part of everything that happened the last couple of years is so many people who you thought you knew, you know, I didn't know you felt that way. You know, like little things started to to change, but I think the othering, right, of of that has yeah. has made us yeah. come apart instead of like, can we start trying to come together? But there's just a lot of pain there. I mean, I I could talk about this stuff for days and I'll well, never I get just, anywhere. Just, Let's solve racism, Jim. We've got 10 minutes. Let's go. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you know, well, it's let, such a... Well, let me just say quickly, I, I just read an article that, that posits that, that, that uh, John Stewart, in the early days of the Trump administration, mm-hmm. making fun of him and other comedians making fun of him, really allowed us not to take him seriously because he was such a doofus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This guy can't do anything to hurt us. He's such a fool. Well, we learned that wasn't true. But I'm wondering if that's part of the strategy of the Klan. Is it too... Interesting. Is I mean, from a media strategy, is, is that disarming element that these are a bunch of morons who are strange, misguided, stupid... Um, is that part of their strategy for recruitment for desensitizing for diminishing the the ugliness of what they are i mean i don't i i shouldn't formulate well, questions while i'm talking well, I, I think i understand you colleen yeah. that's, that's an interesting question I, I i think it's it's sort of playing the fool you mm-hmm. know disguising your yourself as a fool in order to get serious work done and i right. suspect there's some of that sometimes but i i take these guys very seriously mm-hmm. Uh, in the 1920s and in their current iterations, I think most of them, some of them are just in it for the fun, for the, you know, whatever. But I think most of them are deadly serious. I think the current iteration really does believe in white supremacy. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's hard to imagine that people still believe that's bullshit. And that's what it is. The technical term yeah. for white supremacy is bullshit. Yeah. Uh, much less being able to even contemplate the idea of white privilege or white male privilege. They, they can't begin to grasp that stuff. They are deadly serious. So what are, what, why were women joining the KKK and are they still, and what were the differences in the roles for men and women? Oh, good question. Yeah. Women had some of the same reasons men did, but they, they tended like women in the twenties were assigned more domestic motherly kinds of chores. Of course. Um, they they uh, they who's took cooking, care of Colleen? Them. Who's cooking, Colleen? Who's cooking the pot? Yeah. You got to clean those white sheets, babe. Yeah, somebody's got to bleach them. You got jobs, mom. Stay in the kitchen, in the church parlor, uh, maybe the women's club. But you know, you you mentioned suffrage, and and women in the 1920s had just gained the right to vote, and some of them, in fact, were uppity women, and they wanted to make a difference, and they saw the Klan again, hard for us to understand as a way to make a difference, to get involved in doing good work. Uh, one of the good things they wanted to do was to build up the public schools so that the Catholics, those darn Catholics, and the parochial schools would not take over. Client uh, women doing very good work. Good, good work. Um, I wanted to just jump in real quick because um, I know we're – this is great. This is a really great history. And um, – it's important to talk about today, but I, I think we're kind of skipping over a little bit the horrible things the Klan did. Yeah. And um, obviously we don't want to dwell on it for the next, uh, I mean, we could talk about it for hours, right? 
but I just want to be very clear to our listeners that, I mean, is there a instance, Jim, um, is there like a f- famous infamous would be the better word, um, kind of situation of violence or something that the clan did that maybe the average Indianan Hoosier doesn't know? Well, the answer, the, the, the short answer is no. Uh, there was, there are a few documented cases of clan violence in Indiana in the 1920s. The best known is in a small town in northwestern Indiana, North, North Judson, where they bombed a church, a Catholic parsonage. No one was hurt, but it was an act of physical violence. There are very few examples of that. There's no clan lynching in Indiana in the 1920s. There's very little physical environment. These were good Hoosiers, and they they talked not using violence as the best method to gain the power and the influence they wanted. They were very smart about that. The boys later on, uh, beginning in the 1960s and down to their own time, have used violence on occasion. Um, They bombed a a black market in Bloomington, Indiana in 1969. Mm -hmm. Uh, was probably a Klan member who murdered that black woman, young woman selling encyclopedias in Martinsville in 1968 or so, which gave Martinsville that bad reputation. Um, so it's it's a it's a fascinating story with all sorts of contradictions about what we think we know. So, Indy, I, so if, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm kind of feeling a little more that it was a little bit more strategic, if you will, like they were going to infiltrate, but they were already here. So they were going to infiltrate seats of power, right? Locally, state level, county wide. And then from there, maybe laws would have been passed. And exactly, exactly. Uh Taking over the state legislature, the governor's office, passing laws. And that was just the beginning and spreading to other States. Uh, You know, um, this was a nationwide powerful organization in the 1920s. With so were they, real potential to do harm. So were they communicating with each other, state oh, organization yeah. to state organization, and tracking progress? Oh, yes. And yes, 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 yes. They so really, they was it like, often. I'm sorry. Did so was it? So it really is a political playbook that honestly a lot of people still use today, right? Everything's local. Yeah, grass. All politics is grassroots. All politics is local, and they were very good at organizing at the local level and building it up to regional and state and then national. Organization. The Klan held two massive parades down Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C. in the summer of 1925 and 1926. Massive thousands of rogue Klan members marching down Pennsylvania Avenue. You can see photographs of that online. It is scary as hell. Where where does that lead us now in terms of, sorry, um, uh, I'm confused about the label because I, if I'm not mistaken, I don't believe the Ku Klux Klan like federally has been labeled. If I'm wrong, I know the Southern Poverty Law Center obviously is that's on their list, but I feel like there's been a resistance from the government to acknowledge that these groups exist. Um, I mean, Canada beat us to it, right? Right. They declared the Proud Boys yeah. as a hate organization. Um, I don't know what that mean you know means in terms of you know legalities of they can't operate and things like that. What is the federal government doing? What is our U.S. federal government doing to try to stop these these groups? It seems like it's all in private hands. Yeah. Not as much as they ought to be, okay. in my opinion. But but the Department of Homeland Security did say uh, two or three years ago that these hate groups, these white supremacist groups, are the primary threat to our domestic security. 
Some of us would like to think it's Mexican immigrants or Muslims or whatever, but it's our own boys and girls dressed in militia gear. And we learned that on January the 6th. Do, uh, I hope that our new Department of Justice, headed by a guy who doesn't take prisoners, is going to be a lot tougher on the rule of law. That's what I just want the rule of law in our country. Is the KKK granted uh, tax exempt status? That's a good question, Colleen. I don't know. <laughs> um, I stumped Jim. <laughs> They, no. Oh my God! Please no, don't tell me it's a five hundred one c three. Probably, Jesus. if they were, you know, the ones, the KKK people today, there are all kinds of clan groups all over the country. Right. Very small, disorganized, incompetent. Half of them are probably literally crazy. Yeah. Um, I doubt very many, if any, have the forethought or the power to create a five hundred one three c. They're just not sophisticated like that. Okay. That's the most like, encouraging uh, moment I've had so far. Looks like the ninth. <laughs> interesting. The muse- there's a museum, but I don't think it's to praise. Like, huh? Well, we'll have to come back. We'll circle back, Colleen. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, it looks like there was. Because again, I think wasn't the original. Wasn't originally it wasn't looked at as a bad thing, like people thought oh, they were doing good, good works and things absolutely. like that. Absolutely. Yeah. And, absolutely. And they kind of absolutely. stepped in and all these different. You know, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. like you said, with like prohibition, I think, because they were Tito, Tito Taylors. Yep. I can't, that's my favorite yep. word. I can't pronounce. And then they, yeah. And then, so they kind of stepped in in these things and you didn't realize, or if you did, you kind of, ah, the racism stuff. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, because, because so, yeah. The, tem- the temperance movement and the women, the women's suffrage movement were intertwined, right? I mean, the, the, yeah. the idea was to help women who were being abused by their spouses who were drinking too much alcohol. Um, right. And they, they connected with women's suffrage. So, so I can understand, huh, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to understand why people would think they were doing something good uh, by targeting other people with, with hatred and, but I, but, but I don't, I think, I think it's hard for, I hope it's hard for all of us and all of your listeners to understand, but it's not hard for all Americans to understand because there are a lot of Americans, millions, I guess, who still believe they are 100% American because they are white or because they are native born or some other quality they ascribe to themselves. So I think, <clears throat> I think, not only can we condemn the Klan of the 1920s for these views, I think if we look around, I think as uh, former Secretary of the Treasury said, there are a lot of stupid people in this country. Just look around. Mm-hmm. I hate to be elitist like that, but but recent events, recent years have shown us there are a lot of people in this country who still believe they are 100% Americans and others are not. What is more dangerous for a democracy? So that brings in in another question, and we don't have a lot of time left, which is very disappointing to me because you've been wonderful, Jim. But I'm wondering about the role of education in helping to reduce the stranglehold that this type of hatred has on people across the country. Um, And I'm, I'm wondering what your opinion is and if you have any idealistic thoughts about how we can do better as a society, making sure that our education system is, is really capturing people before they get captured by hatred. 
Well, as an old history professor, you, you've asked the right question. Uh, I think it's education, education, education. And it's the right kind of education, not patriotic education, as Trump tried to introduce. Right. That is fake education, fake history. It's the real history of our country. that includes the great stories of courage and doing the right thing. And also, always, the stories that are not great at all, like the stories of the Klan, which need to be taught and understood by kids. I, I think... I think there's some signs of progress in the last few decades in history teaching in our schools is a big subject. Uh, I've got four grandchildren. They're smarter by far than any other grandchildren in America, but they know <laughs> things that are just amazing, amazing what they know yeah. about Rosa Parks and all sorts of other stories that they've learned in school as little kids. That's good. That's really, really essential. Is it so too sad, late for Gen Xers and millennials mm -hmm. uh, to re-educate them? Never too late, because there are lots of, there are lots of ways now in, in our public uh, uh, understanding to learn. Uh, films, there are great films out there, popular films, Hollywood films even, uh, TV shows, uh, books, etc., where... All you have to do is open your eyes and your ears and your heart and listen and think and ask the question, what is America? Who am I and what is America? Those are the essential questions. It's interesting because I don't know if you've seen this week. Um, there's this big debate in a lot of state houses and a lot of uh, school boards about now teaching you know, race reconciliation and kind of mm -hmm. trying to rename these things that, that need to happen. But now everyone's scared because you're making yeah. the kids PC. And, That's and right. I just saw something like Megan Fox, uh, why, why am I bringing yeah. her up? Um, she's like pulling her kids out of school because they're teaching. And I'm like, wait, no, that's how history should have been taught. Yeah. Because I feel like that even the discussion of reframing Columbus and how we're talking about how America was discovered. I think that's important. Um, and that's shift. and that's changed. Um, I don't. I don't know. How, how do you feel about uh, the public schools leading that charge, or like, does does the government have to get involved and literally pass a law now that we're going to change curriculum? Like, what's well, the, the way federal forward? The federal government, thank goodness, can't do that. That's, education is still public education, state and local responsibility. I think it's a good thing. Mm -hmm. But communities need to push. Um, teachers need to learn. Curriculums need to change. Uh, all sorts of support needs to happen so that the teachers in our schools can understand themselves what we're talking about and can find ways to do it in an honest and even scholarly way without indoctrination. It's not political. I hate that term, political correctness. It shouldn't be indoctrination. What's important is to teach people how to think. you got to be able to think for yourself, uh, to read, think, and analyze. And you can teach kids how to do that. You can. And I'm sorry, I said Megan Fox. I meant Megan Kelly from Fox, who used to be on Fox. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got and I was like, wait, why am I listening to her anyway? But it's just, it came up in the news several times this week. Um, oh, the, the right wing is running with this now. They're counsel right. culture labels and all sorts of other things. And this too is mostly bullshit. Yes. The idea, uh, college professors like me are especially targets, but you know, uh, all of us will say, God, I only wish we could indoctrinate our students. They don't listen to us. <laughs> You know what y'all right. did in college. Exactly. 
<laughs> Some things we're trying to forget. Right, um, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank God there were no cell phones. That's yeah. all I'm going to say. <laughs> that was the benefit of my childhood. Yes. Okay. Um, I am disappointed to have to end this conversation. And um, Jim, I would welcome you back for every single book that you've written because I think you have such a wealth of information and we are so grateful that you joined us today. The two questions that I ask everyone at the end of our uh, recordings are, first, what is one of your favorite things about the state of Indiana? Oh, goodness. I, there's so many things to love about Indiana and to hate about Indiana, but we're defending Indiana. Right. And I, I, I am so traditional in that way that I actually like a tenderloin sandwich. My wife can't bear to watch me eat one, so I have to do it by myself. <laughs> You know, Just I could go your out, blood I could while go out to strip clubs or whatever, but my form of uh, <laughs> of, uh, of, of near Merrill's discord is to have a tenderloin One sandwich. sandwich. Yes, and I don't do it very often because it's special. You know. Yeah. <laughs> All right. What and is it's artery clogging? Don't not yeah. very often. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. Um, Je Janice and I are at, at some point going to address the tenderloin sandwich in. Um, we have to. We must. One of our food episodes. Um, so my second question for you is, what is something that you would change about Indiana if you could? Oh, so much. I know. <laughs> I would, I would, to be serious, lift the education system. Indiana has declined in all measures in education in the last decade and beyond. We're going down. You know, we used to, we used to compete with, try to compete with Kentucky. Now we're competing with Mississippi. We're going down, down, down. And, uh, and there I go back to the Indiana General Assembly. And I think, I think uh, with some exceptions, they are doing great harm to the state of Indiana. All right. Well, thank you. I don't know if we've done an effective job today of defending Indiana. However, I think the conversation- We educated. We educated Indiana. The conversation we just had was very important. Absolutely. I learned a lot. Um, I actually think we could probably talk about this for another few hours. Um, and maybe we will. <laughs> If you'd come back with us again sometime. Happy to. Defending Indiana, featuring Colleen Brennan and Janice Rodriguez, is produced by Colleen Brennan and Janice Rodriguez. Theme music and sound editing by Michael Miltenberger. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard today, you can subscribe to Defending Indiana wherever you find your favorite podcasts.